Hello friends, how's it going? It's Matt, you listen to episode 139 of the Looking Sideways Action Sports Podcast. Blimey, 150 really is approaching soon. Might have to do one of those Instagram polls that have been proving so popular recently over at my at We Look Sideways account to canvas a few options on who'd be a good guest for that milestone. But in the meantime, I'm back with this one, which is with the great Ben Moon, photographer, filmer, writer, and yes, dog owner. So like a lot of people, I first became aware of Ben when his short film Denali was released a few years ago. And since then, I followed his career with great interest, particularly as in recent years, I've had my own challenges with my own pup, thanks to some health issues he's been going through and which we spent a couple of years trying to help him overcome. Anyway, I was introduced to Ben by our mutual friend, James Joyner, after I was a guest on James 1% for the Planet podcast. Big recommend for that one if you've not checked it out, not just my episode. And uh, me and Ben sat down soon after the US election to record this episode. And this was a really lovely conversation that took its own time and went off in some uh, lovely tangential directions. Of course, we talked a lot about Denali, both dog and film. We also chatted about Ben's career and how that has also evolved in unexpected directions. If you, one of the listeners who really enjoys these conversations where people talk about how they ended up with these random careers, I think you'll really like this one. We also found time to discuss the nature of style when it comes to these activities that we all love, the emotional challenges of creating honestly, plenty more themes and subjects that will be familiar to listeners of the show as right up my boulevard. I'll be back at the end for Housekeeping Corner, but in the meantime, here's me and Ben Moon. Enjoy. You know, like, obviously I speak to quite a lot of American guests about trying to get them on the show. And I'd say the last, like, three weeks everybody in the states i've spoken to basically has been pretty distracted about this whole scenario and and even insofar as like the last week people were just like you know what i think i'm just gonna let's let's just let's just catch it when it's done can't actually focus on anything else i mean it was it was bad enough in the uk like you know that sort of interim period between the third and then i think it was announced he was president-elect on the saturday right it was saturday morning yeah um, I had. Five. I mean, even here, it was dominating the airwaves, and you know, just it was wall to wall. So, yeah, God knows what it must have been like over there. Yeah, I, my my screen time went from you know like a reasonable amount up to like eleven, twelve hours a day because I could not stop scrolling. I was trying to figure out what was happening, and so I knew that wasn't healthy. So, if I I finally had put down the phone, and one of my musician friends from LA just texted me out of the blue and said they called it, and so. That was an immense relief, but still a long ways to go and a lot of reparations to do and healing in this country, but hopefully we can get through it. So, Yeah. And you're, you're in Oregon, right? On the Oregon coast. Yeah. I live, um, right across the street from the beach here. Um, yeah, I can see the ocean from where I'm sitting. So it's, yeah, it's a, it's a great place. I'm about, oh, a little less than a kilometer, uh, from, um, from the surf break and so and i can walk and check the surf in the morning with my dog and there's a big cape um sand dunes a lot of sandstone structures and uh multiple you know a lot of a lot of little nooks and crannies to explore in the morning and so it's it's nice to have 
have that, especially during, you know, all the, the COVID stuff and the pandemic and the lockdown, just to be able to walk out and see nature and see that life, in fact, was going on in, in spite of it feeling like it had ground to a halt. So, yeah. And so um, where, where are you building a place? Is that right? Is yeah, it, it... I've been I mean, I'm recording this from my van, my camper van that I've lived in for the last three, three and a half years. Um, I've been, ah, right. Been living on the property, um, and right now the uh, yeah, it's been a, quite a process. I'm building the uh, my edit space uh, studio as well as the home, and it's just a bigger project than I ever anticipated. So um, it's my first time building a home. My dad built the houses we grew up in, but this project was a little bit uh, more elaborate, and um, just with the pandemic and just living in a more uh, remote area, a little bit smaller town. You know, the contractors are a little bit on on coastal time or island time, so to speak. <laughs> and so, which I love about it, this area, sure. but it's just taken a lot longer than I expected. And um, so, hopefully, I'll be moving in here in the next little bit. And I'm really excited to have a you know an edit space set up again. And um, I mean, I wrote the book in the van, but um, everyday life, you know, summertime is fine, but once winter hits and the you know the northwest rains start setting and it's a lot nicer to be in a, a house than a, a camper van so so what van is it how big is it uh it's one of the ford transits kind of like the sprinter um it's it's comfortable i mean i've got everything i need in here um but it's an upgrade from my the van i lived in when i was first starting my photography career so it's pretty yeah pretty cozy yeah I read, I read the book actually i read it the other week because i mentioned when we were chatting on email like i thought well, i'm you know should should read it really before we chat um yeah i didn't realize you wrote it in the van though how was that did are you able to just kind of get your head into it anywhere or are you one of these people that sort of needs to find the right environment so you can kind of concentrate on something like that because um I've, I've been lucky enough to write a few books and it definitely requires um some concentrated headspace let's say yeah i mean i found that the less distractions I had, the better. Um, I wouldn't recommend anyone try to build a house while you're writing a book as well, because there's the, the decision fatigue from uh, building a house is is real, <laughs> and so that was a distraction often. But there was a lot of periods where I could just tuck away and write, and um, it was really nice actually when there wasn't um, much of a structure here yet, because I would just drive down to the beach, park there for the day. Um, you know, go for a walk, surf, you know, I would always be thinking about it, but sometimes I would think about it all day and surf and hang out and then finally like sit down and write. But, you know, I had the most beautiful view out the van window while I was writing. And, um, it was really nice to be that, um, in this place too, because it's where I'd spent so much time with Denali and, um, he spent his last days. And when we made the little short film before he passed, um, all of that was filmed you know, within really close to where I was actually writing it. So, right. So you had that kind of nice synchronicity when you were doing the project. Yeah, to, and to be able to like look at look at some of the areas you were talking about and kind of like tap into that directly. And also, it was just you know having being in the van with with my new dog uh, Nori, um, and really getting to experience a lot of that connection that I felt with Denali because you know after the film you know, went crazy online and there was all this attention for it. I, 
you know, once I started writing the book and got the book deal, I, I started, you know, it's, it's, I started questioning whether, you know, that relationship was as magical as it had all been hyped up to be, you know, it's just like time passes and you start to wonder, is all this effort worth it to write this story? And, um, the more time I spent with Nori, um, all those little moments I remembered, you know, those, that, those moments of connection and how, how dogs can be really special in your life. And, and, you know, it's, it's, that really helped a lot too, to really remind me of the reasons I was writing and, um, just helped give me the courage to go in there. And I'd made a few posts also just about the things I'd struggled with health wise and, um, you know, coming out of cancer and all that stuff. And just reading the responses of those that were just grateful that I was able to share some things that often people don't like to talk about really helped give me the courage to go there too. And, um, around that time when I was trying to finish the book, I lost a few friends that had also been battling colon cancer and that were pretty young. And, and that reminded me too, that it's really important. Even if, even if that's just a small part of the book to like, to talk about, um, just the dangers of colon cancer and the, the symptoms and signs and just to encourage other people to, you know, get checked. But also if, if they'd gone through those things that, you know, just to remind them that life isn't over and you can still, you can still fully live with, with, um, you know, less than ideal circumstances sometimes. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's obviously one of the reasons why your stories struck such a chord, I think with people, isn't it? Um, on, but yeah, I mean, the, the, the awareness thing I mean I've actually lost a friend to colon cancer as well and um, yeah and he's he was very young he was like 33 I think 33, 34 early 30s anyway and um, I remember seeing him about five years ago uh, he's Canadian and I saw him uh, in Jackson Hole actually and um, we were snowboarding and then we went out that night and he wasn't drinking and uh, I was like oh you're off the booze he's like yeah I've got this really bad stomach you know He's like, I think I've got an ulcer. And and he said, it's been going on for a couple of years, really. I'd, you know, I've tried loads of things and, and yeah, you know where the story's going. And essentially, like, he, he did, you know, just didn't, didn't cross his mind what it could be at all. Just assumed it was gonna, because of his age and because of his fitness. Um, so, yeah, the awareness thing is obviously just so important, isn't it? Especially, especially when you have these kind of rare cancers that do affect younger people. And, and, you know, that, that, you know, we all sort of feel like we're invincible at that age, don't we? And you just don't even consider it really. And like you say, it's never really talked about that much, is it? So I do think that's one of the reasons why your story has affected people so much. Is that something that you've experienced as well? And generally as the story's grown and grown? Yeah. I mean, obviously now there's more research that people are, you know, scientists and doctors are recognizing that colon cancer is affecting younger and younger populations. Um, but you know, I, when I first had symptoms, it, I was only 27, you know, and I, I, a friend told me you could have colon cancer and I looked it up and first thing it said was, are you over 50? And so I just kind of blew off the rest of the symptoms, which I had, the, I definitely had. And, you know, and fortunately I had a friend make me go in that, you know, I was, she, saw what I was going through and just kind of kindly and a little bit cunningly <laughs> got me to go to the doctor and, you know, she saved my life. And, and the thing is, is a lot of my friends have tried to get colonoscopies and, 
you know, just to be sure if they have family history. And a lot of times if they're under 40, they're not able to. And you just have to insist on that care. And I'm really grateful that the nurse practitioner I went to see um, ordered a test because had I just been put on, you know, some sort of pills, I, I wouldn't be here. So because it was they caught mine right before it went really, really bad. You know, it was, yeah. They, you know, they said it was stage two, three, but it, you know, the, the, the line between stage two and four and, and colon cancer is, is just, you know, days, weeks, months sometimes. So it spreads really fast. So. I think one of the things that really struck me reading the book as well was like, it was quite a long time, wasn't it? That you had symptoms that you effectively were managing. Um, like, am I right in thinking it was a, it's like almost like a few years, right? Like it's quite a long period of time where you were effectively having, you know, it, it seems from reading the book, like increasing, go to increasing lengths to kind of like cope with it. Yeah. It's amazing what we can justify and deny, you know, whether it's in health or life or relationships. Um, and you know, when I, I think it was a solid year and a half, possibly more from the time I, you know, I fainted in at the fire and saw blood in my stool. And it was like, there were like, definitely those are pretty stark, um, stark indicators that something was wrong. Um, but yeah, you can go to a lot of links to justify that. Oh, it's just, it's just some food allergy or, you know, I ate something or, you know, if, you know, there was a lot of things I tried to try to make it. So nothing was bad deep down. I knew something was wrong, but, um, I mean, yeah, I was in my late twenties. It's like I, you're, I, you know, you don't really think that mortality isn't as much of a, isn't not in your forefront of your mind at that time. So. And how old are you now? I'm 45. Um, so I've been, you know, I've been out of, um, out of that. Uh, I guess yeah. They say it's uh, June 2004 was when I was diagnosed. So um 16 and a half years since since I was diagnosed but a lot longer since I first had symptoms so yeah one of the it's it's interesting that you that you when you mentioned Denali and you it's really interesting things saying like you wondered if it was real like that relationship was that was that because the story effectively took on a life of its own because before I get you to answer that question as well one, one of the things I will say that struck me from the book, which I actually really liked was, was your account of making that film about Denali, because it was a really great insight into kind of the reality of creativity in a lot of ways, which is like, there's, there's, there was no plan. Like obviously you were as blindsided as anybody by like how huge that film was. And also it's really interesting to hear like how many iterations it went through to actually get the idea that you got, you know, it was basically like, it sounded like it was quite, quite a, you know like a, a natural process that was quite difficult to, to actually get the piece that you got and then in the end when you you know when you got the piece it sounded like you were like well at least we've got something which is emotional and which is true which is kind of what, what I was trying to achieve and I just kind of thought yeah I mean that's so true about creativity isn't it because you often you often when you see things that are really successful you kind of assume that there's been some you know, huge master plan. And often, you know, it's that old William um, Goldman quote, isn't it? You know, no one knows anything. You just kind of do 
do the best work and then it sort of ends up so when when the story like did hit and and as it did i mean as you know i think i've mentioned to listeners on the show that i was interviewing you and immediately everyone was like denali that film i love that film um i guess the question is did that success it sounds like it did cause you to question the the relationship the nature of the relationship that you had with denali then was that was that what you were getting at when you said like well actually was this real well i think because i mean it like that film did take on i feel like once it went crazy online it kind of took on a life of its own and you know everybody it's kind of like when a musician releases a song you know there, there's a meaning to them and i have a lot of friends who, who are um you know do that for a living and when when they re- we release something into the world it's it's suddenly it's not yours anymore it's everybody takes their own interpretation of that you know and and that film was a vignette you know it was a it was footage that we captured before he passed and you know some old photos and you know we when we set out to do that film that we didn't really it was a different piece entirely it was just kind of a little profile piece for a couple brands and and then we captured a bunch of footage that never got used because it was um you know just kind of didn't fit the fit the edit that ended up um making it but it there was a year a solid year where i was you know multiple edits were attempted a lot of things were tried and it just wasn't working right and you know when i brought the footage and everything we had and um had another friend uh, kind of take my story down and brought that to ben knight who ended up you know, editing it and narrating it. And, um, you know, there had been a lot of struggle to get to that point, you know, a lot of struggle and, and a lot of doubt and a lot of friends and mentors that were just like, just move on. You know, it's not, it's, it's not worth it. Um, I know you're, I know you're grieving your pup, but just, it's not worth, you know, obsessing over this or it's just time to move on. And that's quite, that's quite, that's quite a harsh thing is that's quite a brutal thing <laughs> it that, is that, it that, is that. but i i got it too because it was it been going on for a while and i think people just wanted me to um they saw my creativity <laughs> kind of stuck you know they wanted me to like start yeah creating other stuff and stop being if it wasn't working it wasn't working and but something wouldn't let me let it go and i knew that one thing i felt deep down is that in order to make it affect anyone else it had to be relatable you know and it needed to um need to go beyond Tenali and I and there was something that you know there's something that kept driving me I didn't know what it was and and it's it was kind of a definitely a um a reminder of like when your intuition tells you something you know just keep keep on that path and um but I think because it got so you know you know the 15 20 million views online and the you know, all the people that shared it and, you know, just all the hubbub, it just, I just, it felt, became something, almost something else. And, and in a lot of ways, writing the book was a way for me to kind of reclaim the story for myself. Um, yeah. And I needed to tell it in my own words and I needed to, I needed to go all the way back and help, help myself and others like understand why he was so important to me. You know, because the film just kind of touched on the end of his life. You know, it was like, it was kind of, it was a cute story told from his perspective, but I felt like I needed to say it in my own words. And, and so that, you know, that was a pretty emotional journey. It took four years. <laughs> so, yeah. 
Wait, was it, I mean, had you done anything, because obviously your background is photography, film, so were you, were you quite out of your comfort zone to actually take something like that on creatively? You know what's funny about writing is it's the simplest form of creativity. You need the least amount of, you know, gear. You just need, you know, you can write it, you can type it, you can say it, and, you know, but it also is one of the most challenging things because it has to come from somewhere else. You can't just, you know, if, with a, with, if I'm feeling stuck in photography, I can just walk around with my camera and, it, you know, you can find something interesting to photograph. Um, but when you're writing, you got to sit, just sit down and start, just start typing. And oftentimes it doesn't, doesn't feel like you're ready or, you know, there's a lot of things that are frustrating um, in that process and a lot, a lot of doubts. And so, I had never written anything longer than maybe a one page article, um, other than college papers, you know, and, um, that actually a lot of that, um, that account, because it was when I first woke up from the colonoscopy that was actually included in the, in the book. Um, so, um, yeah, it was, it was a pro it was an intense process, but I realized that I also needed to go deeper than the story, than the film. I needed to go a lot more vulnerable and, or it wasn't, I think I was really feeling just kind of over the whole social media thing too, you know, just, just how everything is curated and, you know, it's, I was finding myself looking at other people's lives and, you know, thinking, you know, just, just like anybody that you're thinking everybody's like got it made and, you know, just knowing that that's that's just not real and i feel like in this era and especially going through all the challenges of this country's gone through the last you know four years it's like i just felt like it was important to share the real parts of life and what was what was actually you know the struggles and overcoming those struggles and how you can get past the things that seem the most challenging i mean you certainly were vulnerable in that book you know, you talk. You talked about a lot of very, very personal things. Obviously, you know, you, there's there's the whole story of of, of your, your illness and treatment. But you know, there's a lot of like super personal relationship stuff in there, and um, loads of stuff about your you know your, your your childhood and your family. And you know, it's really revealing, really vulnerable. Like, was that how how quickly did you realize that that was going to be for you an important part of telling the story to actually go there? I mean, I. Th- I threw a lot of things at the, you know, like a lot of the book was written by just little vignettes that I would write about things in the past that would come up. I, I mean, I had a, uh, you know, the notes um, app in my phone was just full of, you know, 10, 20, 30,000 words of just little vignettes. And yeah, a lot of experience that I just kind of threw in there and like ex- expanded on them and just started seeing if they would fit. And basically I didn't want to, I didn't want to write about anybody else in the book unless that it was really important to the story and I didn't want to write about experiences unless it brought something to it and it kind of the book does kind of jump around a little bit but I felt like there was a lot of topics that I really wanted to just touch on um both was like you know mental illness and dealing with you know depression and anxiety at a young age and like you know getting past that and having you know how you know dealing with health issues and physically and you know, struggling to be a creative and learning how to move past how to get started and also get through, you know, all the challenges and doubts that come with that. And, um, 
and just like the, the honestly the the threat the through line for the story is friendship with my dog and with others you know and those that keep you those that keep you going um and the interesting thing is is you know there was um because the film was popular there was a lot of interest in it and you know a lot of people or there was a one company or production company that was interested in making a feature film out of it and i just felt like the short film was a vignette in itself and if you expanded on that it would just it just felt pretty meaningless to me and um last last winter i spoke with uh, max winkler and uh, charlie hunnam the actor and and about adapting it and they they saw what i was trying to do with the book you know they'd read the book and they they it was like a very personal um very personal conversation we had and we connected on a really deep level and i could see that they understood that it was more there was a deeper story there about you know coming of age and also just learning how to rebuild your life after a lot of challenging experiences and and so to go even deeper into the story and you know, writing the book was challenging. Reading the audiobook and narrating the audiobook was another experience in itself because I had to read the entire thing word for word, you know, for a week. Um, but then having someone, having Max adapt the book into a screenplay and then reading that, um, you know, like kind of a fictitious account of what I went through, but also like working with him to capture the emotion of, you know, what it was like to... because the that goes way goes way back and goes way deeper more like the book does it's not like a the film isn't the the film the part that the film mentioned or the short film is is does kind of not even relevant to the book um or to the this film ad- adaptation at all it's 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 more about the deeper early life story of denali and i and so that's been quite the process to yeah right revisit it I again been, <laughs> i must have been crazy to see to see that outside to see somebody take your story again because you know what we're talking about it's almost a bit of a theme developing there isn't there's like you know like how stories evolve and how they evolve from like your experience personally which is obviously what you lived into like then how it went out into the world through the original film and then you've explored it again with the book and now you're exploring it a fourth time and experiencing it a fourth time with this this screenplay you know you mentioned the emotion you would try to capture like what what would that be can you characterize that? What's the, as far as you, the, you said, like, yeah, the screenplay, you said we would try to capture an emotion to, to sort of, is, is that something you could sort of. Yeah. I mean, words? it's, you know, I've, I, you know, I can speak in general terms about it without um, revealing too much, but yeah, it's, I mean, it's in the, it, it goes back into the early parts of the book and, and just show, you know, just, kind of shows why Denali was so important and then just going through that whole like you know dirtbag life of re and trying to you know learn how to be a creative and so uh a lot of it is about learning how to find yourself again after you've kind of hit rock bottom you know when everything seems to like be stripped away from you um finding yeah. finding your community um finding finding your creativity finding the friends that you know you know, because Denali was a, he was a, I mean, I was going through a lot and dogs often are mirrors of where we are. And so he was a, he was a little bit of a challenging pup, you know, he's stubborn and, you know, loved to wander and, 
Um, <laughs> and so, you know, he was a bit of a jerk too. And so I, I just, I feel like that it's funny to see Max kind of capture him being a little bit of a, you know, a challenge in, in the story. And, um, and, you know, that they're really hoping to film in the spring and we'll see what happens. And, you know, it's like, he's, he's mentioned that in the set. He just, Max and Charlie actually just had a film come out called Jungle Land. It came out yesterday. Um, and, uh, and in the interviews, he had, Max had mentioned that, you know, they're, they're trying to start production in the spring with this. And with the pandemic and everything, it's more challenging, but because a lot of it is a man and dog outside, you know, it's not as hard. So you don't have a yeah. big green screens and studios and <laughs> yeah, 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 so. yeah. That's amazing. So it's actually so. going to happen. So it's been funded and it'll. It's it yeah. Happen. I mean, everything's you know as everything much as in that you can world. Say that about films. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> everything yeah, in that yeah. world can you know come. It's a long. It's a miracle when anything actually gets made. And so, um, but yeah, uh, everybody seems to like really like the screenplay, and we're on doing the revisions, and you know, it's it's been um the producers attached to it too are are really wonderful um you know they a lot of my friends have um who have worked with them said they're just incredible to work with um they they made a couple of films uh that are a little smaller indie films like little miss sunshine nebraska and uh that one that came out last year uh the peanut butter falcon um with ah, nice with shia labeouf and um yeah yeah, uh, yeah. and uh well, all those films manage that really neat trick of telling stories that could be handled really badly. You know, if if they were in the wrong hands, could be like pretty cringe. But they actually make them. Uh, you know, there's almost like an art house element to them at the same time, right? There's almost like that kind of alternative sensibility to those films that, yet still being like massively relatable and kind of touching upon those universal themes, right? Which is as as we know not that easy to accomplish when you're making films so yeah that's that's cool it gives it a good ballpark definitely yeah and it's it's what? rare in that world to just find people that feel really grounded and are all connected and it just that feels really good so you know we'll see what happens but i i hope it gets made so yeah one of the other things that i really noticed in the book as well is your descriptions when you were, when you were young of like your shyness and sensitivity you know, it's like a total theme in the in the book about and you almost describe it at points as like a physical thing like you know like a tangible thing like you're uh, almost like an ability to kind of intuit other people's feelings and that can affect your own mood does that does that kind of is that fair to characterize it like that yeah i mean it it took me until you know as i don't know five Five or more years ago, I had a, a mentor counselor that I was working with that helped me a lot. Um, actually, she helped me immensely in getting to the point where I had the courage to share the short film. And then, you know, I know I wouldn't have had the courage to write the book had I not kind of gone through some of that um, personal growth. And she had made me aware, you know, she's like, you know, of the term empath and when someone is really sensitive and they can feel other people's emotions at, at times. And it just, it's just being almost like your intuition is a little on hyperdrive and, and, and it actually, actually it can be an immense benefit because, you know, in, in film and photography, you can kind of see things that others might just miss. And, and so that's, you know, a huge, um, you know, that can be a really large benefit. 
um, in your creative process, but also it can be a handicap in personal relationships because you misinterpret what your feelings are for other people's feelings and, and just kind of get swayed too easily. And, um, at one point she said, you're a bit of a shapeshifter. You kind of, you morph into what other people want you to be. And then by the time you realize where you are, it's already too late. And then it's easy to get resentful and things like that. You know, it's like just in our own, because if we end up somewhere where we didn't really plan to be or didn't actually put the intention behind, it can often, um, yeah, it just throws your whole, once you, once you kind of wake up and look around, you're like, wait, how did I get here? I don't want to be here. And, and so it's been a really great learning process to just decipher my own emotions from others. And, um, the physical part you mentioned is just the, the palpable feeling of like when someone walks in a room and I know I can actually sense what's going on and that I just have to be like, that's not mine, you know, leave that, leave that there. And, and, um, but it also, it like, it, it can make for really incredible connections with friendships and with, you know, relationships as well. So it's one of those things you just have to learn the balance and, and, um, yeah, like see the, see the good and the bad in it. Yeah. Well, I imagine it sounds like that's taken a lot of, a lot of work to kind of understand it. Cause you know, like we can, when you, when you, when you're younger and you, you're learning to navigate these things anyway, aren't you? You know, relationships, social situations. Um, so that's challenging anyway. But you know, if you've if you've got like this added layer to it, then I can I can imagine that that will take some work to kind of understand like how it's affecting the relationships that you have and and you know your own kind of the way that you perceive things as well. And in general, I mean, society's you know tended to glorify you know being the tough guy and the you know and so the you know being you know growing up as a sensitive kid and you know feeling a lot of emotion and you know you know having teachers tell me like boys don't cry you know and like things like that you know it's just it's i feel like that's one of the big flaws in how you know i feel like the more vulnerable and sensitive men can be and understanding their own emotions and not just stuffing them you know that's the further along as a culture will will be and i feel like lately it's you know been more accepted and more talked about but it's still you know um especially previous generations just just you know there's it's just stuff it and move on you don't you don't want to actually talk about your feelings and so learning how to be expressive but also just deal with things not just talk about them but actually like learn how to deal with them and move on so I think that's why it stood out, though, because, like you say, it's it's rare, it's pretty to even like read, read about that aspect of masculinity. Like you just don't, you just don't read about it. You don't read about like people openly copping to that. You know, even on the simple level, like there's, a, I think there's a, yeah, there's a couple of stories in the book where you're talking about like you know being affected when you were an adolescent and crying, like you know whatever, like just kind of small instance in the book but it did really stand out because it was like yeah you just don't you don't ever ever read depictions of of masculinity like that it's it's extremely i'm i was trying to think when i was reading it i was like i can't even really think of any really i'm sure there are i'm sure there's loads but you know nothing you know what i mean like most when you think about the books that you've read or the films you've seen like most tropes like most 
aspects of human nature you can think of characters you can think of incidents you can think of things in culture that speak to that but that is is definitely quite rare was that so when you were writing the book and that and going through this was was a lot of this new to you do you know what I mean like as you went through it was was there a part of it that was like you you were using the creative process to work out some of these questions that you'd already had or that you might have always had yeah I mean I remember when uh I share a uh I share the same uh, book agent with uh, Tommy Caldwell the climber who did you know, the Dawn Wall and um yeah yeah you know um it's great the Dawn Wall loved it yeah uh and I remember when uh, Tommy, you know, he let me read his propose- book proposal and, you know, he just told me, he's like, man, this will be the best, it's one of the best therapy you've ever, ever experienced. And I, you know, writing the book was, you know, you have to, you have to put yourself back in those places, um, which was both, uh, you know, cathartic and extremely painful at times. Um, and, you know, there was, and I think that's where a lot of the procrastination for writing, it's like, I can write about stuff that doesn't involve me, you know, no problem. But when you're trying to write about something deeply personal in a way that feels like it has a reason to be written and like, and you can gain the insight from it and it's not just being like, uh, woe is me. And like a lot of the situations I shared in the book were challenging, but they weren't to try to have anybody feel sorry for me. It was because I felt like it gave context of why that relationship with Denali was meaningful and how low I had to go to get to where I was you know, came from, you know, or, or where I got, got to be later. And so it, I just feel like a lot of people don't share that and don't share the challenges. They just, they're like, all of a sudden they just seem like they magically appear somewhere and have all the success. Yeah. And it's just, just kind of want to show it's, it's not a, it's not a linear path, you know, and everybody has their own path. And I've, my trajectory towards, you know, I've been doing this, um, as you know, I've been in the creative realm for, you know, pretty much 20 years now. And, and, you know, I didn't have overnight success. It was like a lot of reinventing myself and figuring out what things are. And it's always a struggle. You have to constantly, you know, going even the, this, the most basic um, transitions that have happened in the creative, you know, realm, um, you know, with, um, sorry, my dog. (laughs) She's like, there's some contractors here working on the, the drywall um so my dog's like on high alert um but i just going from film you know shooting film when i first started i was all shooting slide film to digital then from every you know which was a big challenge for a lot of people and like you know i worked with patagonia for the last 20 years and their archives had to be switched over and used to be you send sheets of slides and they'd go in the vault and then they had to learn how to you know we all had to learn how to manage all the digital assets and becoming our own photo lab and and then you know, that distinct moment when, you know, Canon put out the 5D Mark II and everybody suddenly had this filmmaking tool in their hands that, you know, took incredible video um, that you could lose, use the lenses that we, instead of just being like shoddy, shoddy footage, you know, and I'd shot a little bit. I directed one little music video and on really bad cameras and, you know, earlier, but this, that was a real transition where in learning how to shoot become you know, adapted motion, which is a whole collaboration in itself, you know, that you don't do a film by yourself. There's, you can, but it's so much stronger if you find all the players and there's so many elements in filmmaking and that's why it's beautiful. It's the writing, it's the, the visuals, it's the music, it's the sound design. Um, 
and there's uh, the edit and um, and then you know the big move to social media, which you know suddenly a lot of working pros you know had trouble with sharing. I, I I'm not a I tend not to be an oversharer. I don't I don't post a lot of photos. I'm not like that. But then seeing you know a lot of the kind of the influencer generation come up and you know become instant you know these photographers that picked up a camera and suddenly they had massive followings it's 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 been a lot of transition just to work through those and you know who knows what's next you know but it's that's yeah right i feel like the most important thing with photography and with being creative is you know you know yeah obviously take inspiration from those around you and those that really inspire you but always try to find the projects that really light your own fire you know and for instance like my portrait project that i just it started as just this one type of light that I really enjoyed seeing in the place I was living in Portland. Um, it became something where I could just have, you know, 85 millimeter, 85 millimeter lens and, or I use a 135 sometimes, but just having a simple natural reflected light and just the person's face and black and white um, went from this little side project to something that I really, truly enjoy. You know, it's like, it's a way that I can kind of honor a lot of those who I look up to and, um, I have hundreds or even thousands of those on backlog that I've I've shot, and I it's something that brings me a lot of joy to you know shoot and share those. And when I first posted those on Instagram, I didn't think many people would even you know they're like, oh, you're an adventure photographer, why are you posting portraits? And and it's become kind of just a really a part of my creative process and something that I really look forward to, and has you know probably brought more commercial work my way than anything else you know in, in spite it's just it's just you never know where things are going to take you and same with this film it was like you know a little bit of, or that the Dolly film was like a little bit of intuition brought it to a place and then brought the book and now there's uh, you know a lot of other opportunities but it's you just got to kind of keep keep following those little hints of intuition those opportunities you know and opportunities don't come at you with they're not always super obvious you know they might just be these little subtle signs that something might you know somebody might mention something and you're like oh that sounds interesting or you know it's not necessarily like an easy process to find to bring something to life but if it feels right you just got to keep following that thread and seeing where it goes um, well i think that's one of the again one of the big themes of the book really I, mean, I get it a lot with this podcast like people really people really like the episodes where they learn about how people got weird careers for themselves because obviously you know what you do what i do to a certain extent like what your peers do what my peers do they're not ordinary occupations and i think people people that like always really enjoy those episodes when i put them out and in in, in the book it is basically a bit of a classic account of that as you're describing you know like the other thing that sort of struck me as well is and i've said this before on here but a lot of it is like a lot of it's just like a talent for making a decision like and 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 making that decision and seeing where it's gonna lead you and there's definitely a few examples of that in your in your story where you've just kind of made decisions and you you, you obviously didn't really have a clue where it was going to lead you but you've kind of effectively like changed up your situation you know you've like left jobs and like gone all in on a, a different path and and like you say like those are the things that sort of you know that cliche like creating your own look or whatever like like 
most cliches, there's an element of truth in it. And it definitely comes across from your story, you know, like, and it, for me, I recognized a lot of that, a lot of the sort of process behind it and, and how you were kind of like, you know, like you say, you've been doing it 20 years, you're 45, like you've had to kind of negotiate a lot of different areas of media and there's, you got to be adaptable. And that's, that's certainly something that comes across in it. And I think one thing, I mean, I'm, I'm on the Sony, um, one of the Sony artisans for their, their cameras. And, um, I've had the privilege of meeting some people that I've really looked up to and admired over the years. And, um, David Burnett, uh, who, you know, he's been a press photographer with, you know, several of the, he's, I don't know, he's gotta be in his, I don't even know how old David is. He's, but he was shooting with Bob Marley in the seventies before he was even a big star, you know? And so in Jamaica and he has yeah. a beautiful book and his just some of the most phenomenal photos from the Olympics and from past presidents and, um, always using these, you know, crazy Polaroids and Graflex are just like big, huge lenses with film cameras at Olympic events and just doing kind of things differently. But one thing that really struck me with David is just being, being with him at these, you know, events, there's all these influencers running around and, you know, Sony brings people together in these events they call the condo, uh, just like kind of a big retreat for a week. And he'll just be running around so excited and so curious and, you know, just showing me what he discovered and putting these old lenses on, you know, Sony cameras and just seeing how we can, how things can work. And just that curiosity that he still has for photography and the excitement that he still has is, is I think what's important because you have to, there has to be some fire burning. And I often says, you know, like I always, you know, with younger photographers, you see that hunger that they have and that drive and something has to be, you know, and that's what brings you, to a point of success because you just won't give up, you know, and, but you have to have that something that keeps that fire burning. Cause it's like, it can start to feel mundane after a while, just shooting the same things or, you know, I've constantly changed kind of direction on where I, where I'm shooting. And, you know, this, this, you know, this year of 2020 with the pandemic and the lockdown, all the, you know, building this house and kind of being not stuck here, but like travel is not easy right now. It's not necessarily the most advised thing to do. And so learning how to kind of be, be with your, with yourself and being like, what do I really want to do now? You know, I think a lot of people have questioned, you know, their, their paths in this and been forced to deal with some things. And, um, it was interesting actually listening to, um, your interview with, uh, Alex Yoder. Um, Yoder is one of my really, really dear friends. And I'm just kind of hearing his, his trajectory too of what you know I've, I've done several projects with him and we surf together all the time here and um just seeing how he you know became a professional snowboarder and has one of the best you know i would say one of the most stylish turns in the entire industry like he i was definitely got one of the best <laughs> best heel side turns in the game uh, no doubt uh, about that and i mean honestly i was i lived in bend for a long time and was you know wrote at bachelor and enjoyed snowboarding and you know i had one of the original like snow surf shapes that burton made years ago but i kind of was over it because it just didn't seem that interesting to me anymore i was more surfing was much more of a thing and and i i rode at one of uh, jerry lopez's events the big wave challenge I, I followed you know jerry and all the gentum stick crew and, and yoder down the mountain once and just saw and was riding one of their boards and just 
this whole I felt like a little kid again just watching the turns that they were all making and that was that was it's just it's artistry you know and I remember one of my friends edited that I work with a lot edited the film with Taro Tamai and, and Jerry that Northern Sky back in the day and um but just seeing the more the the love and the philosophy and the art behind that but all it was the whole thing with Yoder is just that he's he's an old soul and when I first met him on that film tour when he was with Jerry I, I knew that and um but seeing how he you know his love for curiosity for agriculture and regenerative agriculture it brought him to make a coffee company you know and I mean it's, yeah. it's phenomenal coffee you know the overview coffee but it's, it's also just you know that seems random for a snowboarder to just suddenly decide he wants to create a coffee brand so yeah well like you said it's it's like we're talking about it's just the path isn't it he's followed his path you know he's 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 used everything he's making decisions he's used all the things that he's learned all his experiences put it into something new he's taken a chance he's made a call yeah i totally get that yeah yeah on the gentleman stick thing i think you used art, artistry is the word what i really love this is like just a slight tangent but what i really love about them is like how unique to their environment is as well you know have you been over to niseko I have not. I've been to Japan, um, but not. But, I have not been to that area. But I, I know how it's just the start. Well, when media. you ride there, like yeah, when you ride there, you really understand like where it's all come from. Like not only the boards, obviously, but also like the, you know they've got such a particular style of how they snowboard, and it, you can really understand that it's come from those hills. It's come from that snow. It's come from you know all been about like finding a, a means of expression in that particular environment and that that's just great isn't it you know like he you know even i was there in in january and some of the local boys were like you know when you go snowboarding on a power day you get a face shot someone was saying like yeah it's really frowned upon over here because not frowned upon but like it's not considered to be that stylish because you know there's so much snow over there that if you're constantly getting face shots you know you literally can't see so what the local boys do is try and pick lines that means they can avoid the face shots, you know. And there's just that like that nuance of like such a local nuance of like what's considered to be stylish and that's functional as well, obviously. I just love that. I just thought it was absolutely brilliant because it's, you know, it is something that's just developed from that little environment, which is kind of what, what all these things fundamentally are sort of supposed to be about, right? Yeah. And I've, I mean, I've seen that with surfing too, you know, there's, I'm really drawn to people who make art in the water and I've, you know, spent a lot of time with, you know, longboarders who really inspired me, you know, um, a couple of the paddock, um, my friend Belinda Baggs, I used to travel with her a lot. Um, she's an Aussie surfer. Um, used to live yeah, in she's Nusa. got it as well. And just this that thing that we're talking about. And she was, when she was with Dane Peterson back in the day, just watching them surf and, you know, now Harris, um, Harrison and some of the guys that were just groms back then when I was watching them surf, it was just, I mean, obviously the waves are perfect, some of those points, but just seeing that artistry and guys like, you know, Dave Rostovich and, and spending a lot of time with the Malloy brothers and, um, you know, they're all phenomenal surfers, but Dan, Dan's like the artist, you know, he's just like watching him carve lines and, and, and now with a lot of the alternative shapes kind of having a resurgence with, you know, new shapers and, you know, just not necessarily the standard, you know, world tour shortboard. It's more about, you know, yeah. different twin fins and setups and 
all these old shapes are kind of being revitalized and you know one of my favorite boards is this mid-length egg that just it just has it's you know shaped by bob mitzvin and he's been shaping for 40 plus years and just the it looks like such a simple board but there's still all these nuances on that you know just being able to draw these lines that you know just feel really graceful and um i don't know i just i love all forms of wave riding too and it just it's being influenced by a lot of the guys that do see it as art and see it as an expression is is um you know and then you know jerry's son alex like known him since he was a teenager and you know seeing him you know, now he's with leah and seeing the you know how she can ride all the shapes that you know single fins and these critical waves and just it's really fun to watch just surfers and and here too um it used to be kind of a bit of a shortboard scene or you know a longboard now it's there's a lot of people that are mixing things up because it it you know there's a lot of just enthusiasm around just having fun in the water instead of making it so like just very you know specific styles just it's all about yeah a good time and well you know as you alluded to with snowboarding as well like that that's quite i think that's quite a recent thing that's become part of the whole mainstream culture of snowboarding obviously you always had those pockets like we've described gentum's one and but you know again this like it's kind of followed surfing in a way this like multi shape snow you know surf influence shapes and like how you know the experience you described of like riding one of those Genton boards for the first time kind of just does open it up as a as a less one-dimensional experience let's say you know than if, if you're all riding those kind of 20s that are just you know made for freestyle or whatever you know that's quite a recent thing but yeah i really like that description of style because it you know i really like st- style you know you mentioned dan you mentioned belinda where it's rooted in function as well you know it's like it's it's about the building blocks of of getting around in a graceful way and and you know those those maneuvers same with climbing as well obviously even more so in climbing there's there's a point to them there's an economy in movement you know there's a and there's there's uh, the foundation is just great technique you know it's the difference between that isn't there? somebody like trying to like execute a stylish cutback do you know what i mean like which has got no foundation in the technique or the functionality of it so it's it's fascinating isn't it yeah i think and you mentioned climbing because I mean I think that's where I really I feel like when I started watching a lot of people surf that I really respected I, I even took that into climbing because I was still quite obsessed for you know it was a solid 20 years where I was just that was all I thought about was climbing and surfing was kind of a side side note and I've you know the last five years I've kind of flipped that flipped the script on that but um I I never liked to just get up a climb you know i always like to just i wanted to when if i sent something that was you know a red point something that was really challenging for me i wanted to i wanted it to flow i wanted to truly feel like i i don't know maybe that just felt like i wanted to feel like i deserved to actually get to the top of that climb and not just struggle my way to the top i wanted to you know and there's there are, you know if you're in some desert climb some you know really mean uh, traditional mm-hmm. climb in Indian Creek or something and you, you there's there's no grace to some of that you're just you're just struggling you know there's a there's a lot of there is a beauty in getting to the top of something that you absolutely have to fight through but in like a, especially sport climbing to be able to dance up a move that you know a, a week or two prior felt absolutely and utterly impossible you know but to be able to flow through that movement and and I I the last 
probably 10 years I climbed steadily, I, I really tried to make sure I had a, my, my movement felt intentional and, you know, have that grace and style and people always notice. And it, it's just, it's, it's fun too. It just feels good. It feels good to connect, you know, a turn on a snowboard or a surfboard and, or on a climb and, and connect those movements and have it feel it is that flow state, you know, and, and that flow state can come in physical activities or creativity, but it always feels so much better than just going through it mechanically. Um, and same yeah, with relationships I mean, I've, too. Like, I mean, yeah, the people you truly click with and feel like you're exchanging energy when you're spending time with them. It's so much better to live like that than to just have these like obligatory, like, yeah, let's go do this and <laughs> let's talk. It's, it's a, There's a feeling there that with, you know, that, that's just what I try to find in my life, I guess. Yeah, I mean, what I was going to say was I, I've definitely found it through creative work. I've definitely found that through writing, like the same the same feeling completely, like whether you characterize it as flow state or whatever, you know, like that, that you know, you described it really well. Like there's it's just a unique combination, isn't there, of like concentration, focus, elegance. And also like I think a big part of it is like feeling like you, for me anyway feeling like you're actually giving everything of yourself to it you know you're actually doing the best i'm not going to say hardest because i think that's different for everybody and that's almost like a different sort of kind of worms isn't it the idea that you know there needs to be a a particular worth work ethic behind it but you know what i mean like the, the feeling that you're kind of giving everything of yourself to it is is equally as important like in each of these endeavors that we're talking about yeah, no, it's a lot of it is, you know, if we overthink something and I'm my just my makeup as a human being is like I tend to overthink things. Um, but when you can get into that flow state, you it basically is you're taking everything you've learned over the, you know, over your life and and just shutting off the mind and letting it go, you know, and, and with writing, if you're trying to force something out, it's it's never going to happen but if you're if you can sit down and start to express a feeling then it then that word starts to flow and you know sometimes i would procrastinate for eight nine ten hours of a day and then i would sit down and write for 20 minutes and the you know the few sentences of the paragraph that came out were the ones that would be the keystone for you know a whole chapter or whatever it's just like you sometimes it just you just need to find that moment of letting go and you know a beautiful turn on a surfboard or snowboard or, or climb and whatever that else feels the same you know you're just suddenly not not thinking about it but just just doing so yeah um i mean it's a nice point to bring it back to the book i did i did like the, the you were talking about the notes app earlier like I, I i read a great piece recently i can't remember where it was it was saying like that's i think i might have talked about this before in a that might be the only like last honest bit of digital real estate that we've got left. Cause it's the one place that you're actually honest. You'll have like your shopping list <laughs> and then, and then like, you know, in your case, the, all the, the, the deepest, darkest, like most honest things you're going to put in the book. But I guess what I'm interested in is like to go from you, you know, you mentioned you, it was like almost episodic the way that you wrote it, like with these getting these little vignettes together and you've described like the process of honesty that you were, trying to get to to make it ring true but then to actually put that into a book is is a different like structurally 
is, is another challenge entirely. So how, how did you find that kind of technical challenge, like marshalling all this into something on what is, you know, fairly big scale creatively when you, when you actually come in to, to put all that into the finished book? I mean, it was a lot of, you know, a book is a team effort. You know, there's, you know, I had a, Mark Bryant was um, the first editor I worked with the, to do the proposal. He uh, he edited uh, a couple of John Krakauer's books, and and John had actually introduced me to him, and he helped me with the the, the process of just getting getting my story down and coherent in a outline form. But on the actual, you know, my editor editorial team at Penguin, you know, a, a lot of thanks goes to Pat, to Patrick Nolan who was my editor and now is the deputy publisher there because he from the beginning he was um the books that he referred to that when he after he read my proposal and the, what he you know kind of saw in the story in the proposal were you know uh that uh, Matt Hag who's uh, I believe he's I believe he's over in the UK um uh he wrote yeah, yeah. Reason, to, yeah. Reason to Stay Alive, and his latest uh, book was a novel, actually, um, um, called The Midnight Library. But he, uh, you know, he was very vulnerable with his experience with mental illness and just, you know, and that. And then another book that Patrick referred to was Dog Medicine, which was a woman who had a dog that basically saved her from her own, you know, issues with the same the same struggles with depression and things. And so he would, I could tell of all the conversations I'd had with publishers that he was somebody who really cared deeply about the personal side of the story and, you know, ha having him and, um, also, you know, the assistant editor and everybody that was, were involved, like they, they helped me craft from all these disparate notes and all over the place into something that was a cohesive story and just were really gentle, but also, you know, like this is, where things need to go and and so your edited editors are everything in a book um but then i also i knew that there were a lot of things i'd written about especially earlier early in the book that were really 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 challenging for me to write about you know um just going back to childhood and um you know relationships and things and i i was really trying hard not to like I didn't want to throw anybody under the bus or like blame anyone for anything they'd done. It was more, I just need to say, Hey, this is how I felt in this experience. And this is what, how I responded to it. And, and, and having, I hired a friend who I'd worked with on a short film where she was very vulnerable with her story. Um, it was for like a um, dog food brand, but it was about her and her dog and how her dog had kind of helped her through some deep anxiety and things. And so I already knew that I could be vulnerable with her. And so I was able to like, we had some pretty intensive, so I hired her as kind of my interim editor and we brought, you know, we would have these, um, brainstorm sessions where we would, I would write and she would tell me what didn't feel quite right. And she went through the entire process with me. And so having that, you know, someone to bounce ideas off of before I sent it to my editors in New York really helped a lot because it was, it helped me get out of my head and not overthink everything. Um, and, but also just bounce it off someone who I trusted to be like, Hey, is this, too personal does this feel like i'm blaming or does this feel you know does this need to be in here um and so yeah it, it, it's a team effort you know and like the going from the all these random thoughts and phrases and fragments and to a, a coherent book is 
it's a process. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, we well, said four four years. It's a yeah. it's a mission. Well, I got a couple couple more if that's all right. I yeah. mean, it'd be good to bring it back to Denali if that's all right. Yeah. Um. I mean, again, like I'm a dog owner. Like I I only got my dog two and a half years ago. First dog I've ever had. I've been a bit like, why the fuck didn't I get a dog before? Um. But like I, you know not an original observation but the the sort of strength of feeling that you, that you have certainly took me by surprise and um the 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 description of the grief that you felt after he died is is really striking you know like it's it, it's really i mean you know for me definitely the day i'm probably dreading the most in the future um was that was that challenging to convey that depth of experience i think that you know, there are certain parts of the book that were the easiest to write. Um, you know, uh, you know, they say that the most traumatic experiences are you know, more present because they're actually still living in your body in some ways, you know. And so like the big wave accident and, you know, going through the cancer and things like that were pretty poignant. And like that experience with Denali, like I definitely remembered that process, you know, because I when you realize that this being has observed you and been with you for longer than any human relationship and they're always there, you know, through all the ups and downs and they don't judge and they don't, you know, every day is a new day. They're not holding all these resentments, you know, and that, and having that steady friendship, you know, and then having it suddenly feel like it was gone, um, was, was intense, you know, and that took me off guard. I mean, it, it was, it was hard to, um, hard to wrap my head around at first, but writing about it was, um, it, it felt really good. And, and, you know, just getting a, you know, I didn't have a dog for a couple of years. Um, I think it took me like two and a half years before I adopted Nori, but I just wanted to make sure it was the right one. And when, you know, it was like, it's like a, you know, it's like a really good relationship. You do, you know, one of the right one and, you know, and, they, and feeling that re- that relationship grow and that bond grow is is really special and, and Nori's four and a half now and she's you know that's just what one of the sweetest ages for a dog it's just like they're they've there's kind of this unspoken i barely have to say a word i mean she doesn't have a leash or a collar on half the time and you know or i mean somebody asked me to put her on a leash the other day because i was at outside a restaurant having grabbing takeout or something and i i couldn't even find the leash because it's been like <laughs> six months since she's been on one you know and so it's just this unspoken she's so good at being right at your side and you know kind of knows the the rhythms that you get into with a pup is, is are really special and so and congrats man it's like it's you'll <laughs> that 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 feeling of why didn't i do this sooner it's like that's i felt that too when i got nowhere i was like i kind of what's all that you know that that's where that doubt came in it's like is it really as good as it feels like and it, it is you know dogs are just great i mean i can't imagine having gone through this year without a dog i mean when there was literally yeah. like lockdown and no human contact definitely, for, <laughs> definitely. Like, that, yeah we we said that me and my wife we said that every day we were like i mean this is without this this would be a very different experience like for sure yeah, being able to get a so, hug a dog and, you know, it's real. I mean, you get the same brush of, uh, you know, brain chemicals as you yeah. do with a human. So, yeah. Definitely. Um, well, I guess my final question would be, do you feel that you, one of the things you said earlier was you were, you know, you really try to capture the essence of the, of the relationship that you had with Denali. So do you, 
looking back now, do you feel like you, you've accomplished that? Yeah. Yeah. I feel, and a lot of that, you know, I've, you know, gotten thousands of, you know, little notes and direct messages on Instagram and things that people have, you know, been able to share that they it helped them through their own process and understanding their own process. And I think that was what's been most meaningful um, is knowing that I put everything out into that book and, and just seeing how people have responded to it. Um, and not just the parts with the knowledge, but I mean, think that's what draws people to it. But then um, having readers be like, Hey, I, you know, I've dealt with a lot of the same stuff as you and I never put a name to it, you know, being, you know, a sensitive kid or, you know, being slightly anxious or shy, you know, like a lot of things that just don't get talked about, you know? And so it has been really rewarding to feel that, um, book slowly make its way out there, you know, and, and, you know, being a first time author, it's not that, you know, you know, you don't have the name recognition, so people don't automatically find your book, you know? And so it's been a word of mouth thing and it's been cool to see it really gradually make its way out into the world. And, you know, people say that, you know, publishing a book is a marathon, not a sprint, you know, it's a long, it's a long game. And so, um, yeah, I hope people listening, read it and, you know, I'd love to hear, hear what they think. So, um, nice. Thanks, man. So what's planned for today? Cause it's morning obviously where you are. So you got any waves? Um, yeah, I think the ocean's finally settling down today and, uh, it's been pretty stormy, but it's, it's sunny this morning and I think, it's like a 10 foot swell, but the swells far enough pointed far enough north. I think the Cape's going to knock it down a little bit. So we'll see. So, and then work on the house. Yeah. It's all good things. Nice. Well, Ben, I really, really enjoyed that. Thanks for doing it, man. Yeah. Thank you. So there you go. That was me and Ben Moon and I hope you enjoyed it. Love these chats where they evolve under their own steam and you find common ground as things develop, which is definitely what was going on there. If you want to find out more about Ben and his work, you can find full links and show notes, including to the Denali short film and his book over at my website, www.wearelookingsideways.com. You'll also find the full back catalogue, the blogs, all the rest of that huge archive of free content, links if you want to leave reviews, newsletter signups, you can buy merch, you know, go and have gander, www.wearelookingsideways.com. All right, housekeeping corner. So the rest of them have switched off, just does housekeeping corner regulars still here, I imagine. Very good. So yeah, I've been confined to base somewhat recently as my dog Peg, I alluded to this at the beginning of the show, had another operation last week, which meant he's been pretty incapacitated. Can't remember how much I've chatted about this on air. Definitely chatted about it on Instagram, but basically Peg was born with a condition called elbow dysplasia, which leads to severe arthritis at a very early age. It's basically the thing you don't want your lab cross dog to get. And unfortunately, Peg was diagnosed with that when he was one. And after a lot of uh, back and forth, because it's really difficult to treat, we ended up being referred to a well-known vet in the UK called Fitzpatrick Referrals or the Super Vet, because Noel Fitzpatrick, who is the... Uh, eponymous founder of that practice not who treated us that was a great surgeon called James Guthrie but Noel yeah he's the super vet on TV and if you end up at Fitzpatrick referrals the first thing that happens is everyone says to you Jesus I hope you had proper insurance for him which luckily we did so I would say if you're thinking of getting a dog definitely get health insurance for your dog and also definitely 
tick the box that says lifetime, not annual cover, because that fateful decision, which I had no idea what I was doing, has basically made this much more painless than it would have been. And it's already been quite a mission, to be honest. Anyway, Fitzpatrick referrals are proper miracle workers. They've helped Peg get back to something close to full movement and mobility by performing a couple of groundbreaking operations on him called a sliding humeral osteotomy. I think that's how you pronounce it. Basically, what happens is they cut the upper leg bone in half and then they reset it using an implant. So the weight rests on the disease-free part of the joint. I mean, it's amazing, really. The difference it made to Peg's life last year when he had his right leg done was incredible. And obviously, we've got really high hopes for how it's going to help now that he's getting his left leg done, which was last week. We've now got a three-month period where we've got to help him recover from that. He's not allowed to jump or run for three months and can only have very short walks a day, which build up gradually. I'm going to say he's a 30 kilo, two-year-old Labradoodle. So he's not quite getting that message. He, he literally tried to chase a seagull down the street on three legs earlier, um, which was heartening. But yeah, you've got to keep an eye on him. Anyway, I posted the x-rays and more information about all this. Um, so yeah, with that and the book, which I've talked about a lot, I'm a day job at All Conditions Media and Peg. It's been a busy few weeks. Good job. There's fuck all else to do right now, given we're back on lockdown here in the UK. Anyway, if you've enjoyed the episode, I want to support what I do. I've not said this for a while, but you could leave me a review, post about it on social, tell a friend, sign up to our newsletter, make a donation through the link on my Instagram bio, buy some merch through the website plenty of options, all appreciated, or just send me an email, podcast at wearelookingsideways.com. They're often my favorite forms of support because when people take the time to do that, you know that they uh, really mean what they're saying. I've had some great letters. So thanks if you've been one of those correspondents. All right, I'm back next week. Thanks for listening. Nice one. (laughs) 